Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this time by StoryWorth. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I am joined as always by my co-host Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm just back from my trip to space. Oh, did I not mention that I... No, I didn't go to space. I just flew in an airplane. It's less spacey. It's close. I was on a plane, too. We spent some time together, yep. and now we're back apart in our own crew quarters. <laughs> sure. Yep. Makes sense. We did our did our little uh, time out in the world, and now we're back in our in our uh, neutral corners, in our usual places for liftoff. We didn't record a, an emergency liftoff when we were together last week. We did not. We could have gotten a couple of hotel chairs and like put them on their backs and pretended we were in the Gemini capsule, but we didn't. We didn't. That was a missed opportunity, for sure. I think so. Dang it. To play space. I'll put that on my to-do list. Play space with Steven. Next time. Next time, yeah. Okay. Next time. Okay, so we have some stuff to talk about, but we're going to start with the canceled Lunar Resource Prospector. This is actually one of the things they were showing me when I was down at NASA Ames. Was oh, no. <laughs> was was stuff that they were doing that was for the re, the lunar resource prospector in terms of figuring out they had that they had that kind of lunar soil thing where they can figure out like how do you sample uh, and how do you take pictures and all sorts of things like that that were moving toward the resource lunar resource prospector, but. Uh, yeah, they killed it, and then the, and then the the uh, the new NASA administrator Bridenstein uh, said something about how the they were going to put the instruments on other missions, but it's the messaging on this one's been super weird. Hmm. Uh, it sounds like there's there's some bureaucracy involved here, where this was part of the crewed mi- mission budget, even though it's a remote um, probe. And the idea, the rationale there was that this is laying the groundwork for uh, figuring out what is happening uh, so that then you can send people down there. Like, what is there water in those uh, craters at the poles? And is there uh, helium? And there should be. But, like, to, to do all of that kind of prospecting about, like, valuable resources and things that could be used to keep people alive in the case of the water. Um, but... You know, it's strange, too, because this seems like it's the sort of thing that lays the groundwork for future, uh, potentially commercial exploration of the moon. But, Mm -hmm. you know, again, this particular thing got got killed. And, uh, yeah, I don't I, I don't really entirely understand this. And it seems like a lot of people were caught off guard when this happened. Yeah. And so they say moving forward that, quote, select instruments will continue to be developed, but not the river they're going on. And Brian tweet was like, you know, this allows more ex- exploration and more commercial partners. So maybe that's going to turn all of this sort of thing over to commercial companies. But uh, I don't know who's ready to pick that sort of job up right now. Uh, it, is, it is curious. I feel like there's something, uh, there's parts of this that, that aren't quite super well known. I just feel like there's some missing pieces here. Yeah, and maybe there are announcements to be made that they've got a whole kind of lunar exploration thing um, that is in the works or something. But Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't see it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess rest in peace, lunar resource prospector. Yeah. We hardly knew you. Yeah, it's it's too bad because that was one area where they were kind of pushing forward in terms of exploration on the moon. Like we've talked about, like, oh, moon stuff is coming back into vogue. And yet here is a moon thing. Now, it, it was meant to be, um, I think the idea was that it was going to be taken to the surface on, the idea was a commercial 
something was going to take it mm-hmm. there and then it was going to be yeah. let off. So it was going to be something that was part of something else. And it may be that that's, that's basically what's happened here is they're like, look, this doesn't even make any sense. We're going to do a different program with these instruments and with commercial partners. And that is TBD. Um, in which case it might make more sense, but again, why wouldn't you put these announcements together so that you could have your whole story out there? And that didn't happen. Yeah. So there you go. Um, I hope no one had that on the bingo card for <laughs> the 2020s. Yeah. So uh, we had an, a very important moment on the show last we episode. We did. Where we launched uh, a new segment in which we talk about SLS news. And I asked listeners to help provide us with a name for this segment. And Jason, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> we got a lot. We got a lot of good ones. We've got a lot. So... Um, I'm going to start with Alex and Matthew, who uh, both built backronyms for SLS. Uh, Alex said, SLS latest with Steven. And Matthew, SLS launching soon. I do really like that the first S in SLS stands for SLS. That is it's amazing. It's a good inception, inception moment. Um, uh, SLS launching soon, I think would be funnier if soon was in, in quotes or something. But uh, <laughs> Yep. Uh, we move on to Adam with SLS segment. Now this is brilliant, right? That the 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 acronym, the name of SLS segment is SLS segment, but of course it stands for Space Launch System segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news and trivia. SLS segment. That's very good. <laughs> Dan Dan gets a gold star because Dan uh, submitted several. Uh, he submitted Snafu, which is this SLS news aggregated fortnightly update. <laughs> Fantastic. It's good. Uh, SLS block being SLS biweekly load of current knowledge. <laughs> and what is I think is my favorite, Albatross. <laughs> A liftoff biweekly alert to relay our SLS segment. Right, so SLS segment is in in the uh, albatross at mm-hmm. the end there. That's good. So Dan, Dan really did some homework. Yeah. What's next? Uh, Canis, our friend, uh, wrote in with White Elephant. What's happening in the engineering effort to launch equipment and people? Huh, another new timeline. <laughs> oh, man. I can't... can't <laughs> I guess two sentences. It's so long it has to be... Has to be two sentences. Yep. Eric writes in SLS fortnightly for ongoing reports. The news isn't good. Hopeful timelines left yearning. <laughs> That's almost poetic. Yeah, I know. It's like, like a haiku. I feel, I feel sad after reading that, like deeply sad in my heart. And finally, we have Andrew. Uh, Andrew's name wears its feelings right on its sleeve. It's named Delays. Definitely exciting liftoff anticipated yesteryear segment. Yeah, I'm not sure it makes any sense, but it did make me, it doesn't. It did make me uh, giggle when I saw delays as the uh, segment name. So, what do you what do you think? What do you want to name your SLS segment? Man, I don't know. Albatross is really good, <laughs> but it, it feels a little mean. But I don't know. Did, did, any, did anything jump out at you? <laughs> well, I got to be honest. I think it's kind of brilliant that we could have an SLS segment named SLS segment, but it stands for something. I think that's kind of brilliant, too. Yeah. So uh, I, I like that. And I like that Adams is so long. So space launch <laughs> systems segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news and trivia. Yeah. 
I mean, I think it's we all give it to there. Adam. I think we give it to Adam. Okay, so the the official name of the SLS segment is SLS segment, but it stands for something. It's on all caps because it is a backronym, and I feel like we are never going to be more true to the space industry than by doing that. It feels very good. So, Adam, congratulations. Um, there's not necessarily a prize, but um, our undying love and affection. In terms of the what the words stand for, I think my favorite is snafu. Yeah. But it is also kind of mean. But SLS News Aggregated Fortnightly Update, it's sort of like, yeah, that's pretty much it. But um, it's also mean. Dan's Dan Dan had some mean mean backronyms is what we're saying. Sorry, Dan. Yeah. Dan's a little feisty. Yeah. Albatross. Oh, oh. SLS segment wins. Congratulations, Adam. And uh, we will uh that's not gonna be a, a every episode kind of thing. My thought is, you know, we'll round up a month's worth of news or six weeks worth of news and and then share it. And I think it'll it will obviously become more frequent as time goes on as we get closer to the first launch sometime in twenty forty seven. Or whenever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. We are going to talk about uh, some news, and then we're going to take a trip to the Liftoff Book Club. But first, Jason, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by StoryWorth, the easiest way to share your family's stories. StoryWorth makes it easy and enjoyable for your loved ones to share their life stories with weekly emailed story prompts and questions you might not think to ask. Then at the end of the year, they'll get all their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. It's sleek with the black and white interior, color cover, and up to 480 pages. If you have a family member who's really wordy, don't worry about it. StoryWorth can take it. This means that you and your loved ones can preserve their memories and even pass the book on to future generations. So here's how it works. You buy a subscription for someone important to you. So Mother's Day is coming up, so maybe it's your mom, maybe another family member. And each week... StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. That's it. They just get an email, and they can email back with their story, or they can even call in and record it over the phone if they're not uh, if they're not doing the email thing. And after a year, like I said, their stories will be bound into that beautiful book for them to keep. StoryWorth is a great way to learn more about someone. The questions are designed to evoke uh, entertaining, surprising, and moving responses. And StoryWorth is a great way to stay in touch with family members who may live a little further away than you'd like, and it's, it's hard to have those conversations in person. With StoryWorth, you can write stories and upload photos by email, on the web, or in the app, and you can share the stories with as many people as you want. Just invite them by email. So if you're doing it with a parent, you and your siblings, uh, for instance, could have access to that together. You can save and edit all your stories on StoryWorth.com. And of course, all your data is secure and everything is private by default. You get to control who sees your stories. So I'm using this. I bought my dad a uh, subscription not too long ago. We've been going through some questions and answers, and it's already really interesting learning about, especially him as a child and like an, as, as like a young adult. I just don't know that much about his life in that time period. Like I didn't know the house he grew up in burnt down. I didn't know about his first job. And now we've had like conversations in real life uh, sparked by these conversations on StoryWorth. So if you're looking for meaningful or maybe even a last minute you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day gift. StoryWorth is perfect for those people you care about. So now is the time to place your order. Listeners of this show can get $20 off a subscription by visiting storyworth.com slash liftoff. That's $20 off when you visit storyworth.com slash liftoff. StoryWorth, a new way to bring the family together. We'd like to thank them for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, it's time to go to Mars, Stephen. 
Oh, I need a snack. Hang on. Yeah, it's gonna. It might take a little while. We got. We had a Mars mission liftoff occur in the last fortnight, and it was unique in the sense that it's the first Mars mission liftoff from the West Coast, the best mm-hmm. coast. Some would say, and that would be me, <laughs> and I would be right. But from Vandenberg, normally you, uh, the U.S. launches their Mars missions from from Florida because you get the advantage of the cur- the rotation of the Earth as a uh, you know you pick up that vol- the velocity as you're as you're lifting off whereas um from uh from Vandenberg what you're doing is you're launching to the south so you don't get it but the rocket that was used in this case had plenty of power it didn't matter and so they launched it from Vandenberg and it's NASA InSight that's what's headed to Mars right now yeah so let's talk uh a little bit about the the mission goals and and background so Insight is its whole its whole mission is to study the interior structure and makeup of Mars because it turns out we don't know much about how Mars was formed or how its what its composition is like internally and it's going to study things like tectonic activity and even meteorite impact rate on Mars um, and all this is being done by a lander so Insight's not a rover it's not going to drive around it's right. it's going to land and it's going to spend its life uh, at that spot. It's actually based on the Phoenix landing technology that NASA's used in the past. Um, and it's going to uh, to basically kind of listen to Mars, listen for Mars quakes, measure those. And uh, it's, it's apparently, one thing I read is really cool. It has all these like wind sensors and these other environmental sensors. So it can tune out Okay, you know, I'm picking up vibration. Is it a dust storm over me or is it the planet beneath me? So it's got a lot of intelligence built in so it can tune out those factors uh, for things that this particular mission isn't studying. Yeah, if you think of the rovers that we've had as being geologists in the sense of kind of looking around, looking at the terrain, picking up rocks more or less, and trying to figure that part out, this is a geologist too. But or I guess an areologist, a Marsologist. Uh, but it's doing another part, which is kind of putting its ear to the ground, installing instruments, digging down, and trying to get uh, a sense of Mars's composition beyond the surface as a whole, which is pretty cool. And the way it's coming down, it's not bouncing around. You mentioned the the Phoenix stuff. It 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 doesn't have a sky crane. It just doesn't have a big inflatable ball that it it, it lands in. It actually is gonna. Um, it's got a supersonic parachute, and this is all gonna happen in November, by the way. So that'll be very exciting. Uh, supersonic parachute, and then it drops its heat shield, and when it gets to the surface, it fires rockets and lands. So it's it's a pretty straightforward direct landing and it's Mm -hmm. being targeted at a very boring part of mars and that's on purpose because they don't want any excitement this thing is supposed to you know land at its home and then be able to drill down and get what it needs to get when it uh when Mm -hmm. it gets there yeah so let's talk maybe about the the lander for a second it has two solar panels so there's no nuclear power on this thing it's just solar panels and uh, when they're deployed, it's, quote, wingspan, which is how NASA put it on their website, which I, I thought was kind of funny, uh, is almost 20 feet. Yep, six, and again, meter, six meters wide. It's a, it's a big bird when it gets down there on the ground. It's got to soak in all the sun it can from, uh, mm-hmm. from, uh, from Mars's distance. Uh, the deck diameter is five feet or so, so one and a half meters. And the deck height, so I guess from the surface to the deck, um, 
is 33 to 43 inches or 83 to 108 centimeters. So kind of, I mean, I, I tried to like picture this thing like in my living room, kind of size, size wise. Uh, but I don't want to put it in my living room because it weighs almost 800 pounds, 360 kilograms. Lots of, lots of stuff on that thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big guy. It lands and unfurls its uh, wingspan, I guess it's wings. And, uh, and it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's bigger than a coffee table. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Very expensive coffee table. Mm. Main tools are on the end of a seven foot long robotic arm that can lift a seismometer and a heat flow probe from the deck and then place them on the surface. So these are the, the tools that are monitoring the surface and what's going on below the surface to, uh, to again, watch for those Mars quakes, watch for the tectonic activity, and then record the measurements. Uh, and then ultimately stream them back to Earth. Yeah, there's a cool um, animation of this, and it's it's interesting. They've got these modular instruments, so that the way it works is that the arm will get the instrument and lift it up, and then we'll reach out and you know we'll put it down on the surface somewhere, and then the arm comes back and gets another instrument and can put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. that's even though it can't move around, it's got this arm that can place the instruments out there. What I um, there is a camera, so this is not a a, a probe that is meant to radio back pictures of mars like that's not what it's doing it's not taking pictures but it is taking pictures because they need to look around where they are and know where that arm should place things down because obviously if there's a rock right there you don't want to put the instrument there you want to put it on the ground so that it can it can be right on the ground and and measuring what's beneath it and that is the that's the camera that's on there is is for the arm it's on the arm so that it knows um where it is and what it can uh, you know where they decide to place those instruments i mean i i don't think the arm decides that right people back on earth will decide it but they'll be yeah. looking at the imagery from the arm to say okay uh, we'll put the seismometer here and then they send the commands and the arm will place it on the ground at that point mm-hmm. and you can see in these in these image this imagery uh the instruments on the surface and they sort of have these these big cables that run back up to the platform so they're communicating with the main lander but you know can be offset uh wherever they see fit so i, I think the idea here is to is to give the team flexibility so if there's you know w- if this thing was a fixed place on the deck right it's going to go straight down but there's a rock there that you can't go through because you can't move right like you've, right. you need the flexibility one way or another so it seems to be uh, a very clever way to to add flexibility to a platform that's going to be stationary its entire life yeah and then also it's a it's a weather station you know and and it's measuring the magnetic field variations that are happening and and it, it's uh, we there's so much we take for granted we have so many instruments on our own planet that we can use to measure all sorts of things over long periods of time and on mars our data set is incredibly limited so this is a whole set of tools that will be able to measure things that we haven't been able to measure before and over time because it's supposed to last a couple of years and sometimes those are uh, conservative estimates, so maybe it'll last longer. So they're mm-hmm. going to be able to uh, build up a lot of knowledge. It's it's exciting. This is why these missions happen. This is when we were talking about Juno. It's like Juno is doing things and measuring things in Jupiter that we, we that we had no idea about, and that was really exciting. Well, this is this is the case where we have lots of ideas from various observations about Mars, but this is going to give us a rich set of data to understand what uh, what happened in Mars's history and what it's like today that uh, we've never been able to get before. Yeah, I think that longevity has a lot to do with the solar panels themselves. So if they get lucky and 
uh, they don't get swallowed up by a giant dust storm yeah. in the next two years that th- they would have power, you know, and if there's funding and interest to keep going. But that's a that's a little bit of an unknown with solar panels, right? If you have some, if you have a reactor on board, you're going to run until that fuel is spent or or the electricity generated from the fuel dips below a certain point. But with solar panels, without a backup, if if something a big dust storm comes up and covers this thing, then you're kind of out of options. Yeah. Uh, it has two little buddies that that launched with it, uh, Marco A and B. These are the first ever deep space CubeSats. <laughs> so they launched uh, on the Atlas rocket with uh, with the lander, and then they uh, separated and are they're flying their own trajectories separate from the lander itself. But they're all the all three are going to Mars, and uh, they're carrying out their own communications and navigation experiments during that flight, but they will help uh, MRO, uh, which is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, beam back data about insights, entry, and landing uh, during that time frame. And then they're just going to go right past Mars, like they're not entering orbit around Mars. Yeah, they're they're, uh, but- a- they're acting as communication satellites, communication relays, because I-, I believe the way that it works is that there's no coverage over the landing point at the time that the landing is going to happen. So how do you get the information back to Earth that it landed safely? You could wait and hope to pick it up when another uh, when the orbiter passes overhead. But um, who wants to wait? Instead, they designed these two CubeSats, and the CubeSats are floating. You know, they're not going to enter Mars's uh, atmosphere and go to the surface they're just going to float on by but what it means is they're floating on by up above where the landing is happening and they're going to be able to talk to the lander and talk to earth and relay that information which is pretty cool and as you said their trajectory is slightly different so they're not gonna like the like the rocket itself which is also set on a slightly different trajectory because they aren't sterilizing the rocket and it you know, so they don't want it to land on Mars. So they, they have it just go off into deep space. Like that, the CubeSats will also just kind of keep on going. But for that key moment when um, when Mars InSight is landing, they're going to be the relay, which is a, it's a, it's a clever solution to a problem, which is we've got a few things in orbit at Mars that can uh, do data relay, which is great, but n- the timing didn't work for this landing. So they've got to do it some other way. CubeSats is the answer. It's uh, it's clever, and it's cool to see this technology being used on an interplanetary mission for the first time. And, and I suspect that uh, if this is successful, that we're going to see uh, more of this in the future. Uh, you know, they're they're cheap to fly. They're right. relatively cheap to build, really flexible. Like these these platforms, you could basically do anything you want to with them. And uh, my guess is this is not the the last time we'll see CubeSats used in this uh, this way. Yeah, they're about the size of a briefcase. And uh, there are going to be two of them. And yeah, I mean, th- imagine having the ability to do multiple satellite um, deployments at, in, at Mars, let's say, right? Like, you could potentially do that just by these things being cheap. And if they're sharing a ride with something else, and that's, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So uh, yeah, it's a good, good application for a concept that's only been really used in Earth, you know, in Earth orbit, and now they're like, well, we could. There's nothing stopping us from making CubeSats and sending them past Mars, and so they're going to do it. 
Yeah, so I guess we will uh, we'll check in on Insight in November when we get closer to that uh, that entry and landing time period. Yep. So it's another space mission that we can uh, we can keep an eye on that is that is in transit. Now we've had a couple of those in the last month, so we'll uh, we'll keep an eye, and it will be uh, late November when it gets to Mars, and we'll have that excitement of did it make it to the surface that we have every time we try to land something on the hard surface of a planet. Yeah. You got a hard surface and a very little atmosphere to slow down in, right? That's the it's the, tough the other one. side of that coin. Yep, that's what makes Mar- landing on Mars so tough. Although, uh, you know, U.S. has had a pretty good run lately of figuring out how to get things onto the surface. So let's hope it continues with insight. Yeah. All right. So this week is a an installment of the Liftoff Book Club. Um, in the future, I think we're going to try to announce these ahead of time. But we sort of realized that we were reading this book and wanted to go ahead and talk about it. Um, the next time we'll do a better job at getting people time to read the book as well. Uh, we're going to discuss Into the Black by Roland White. And uh, I think you read this before I did. I just I just finished it a couple of days ago. But um, it's, uh, it's a book looking at the beginning of the shuttle era. So the time really from Apollo uh, until the first handful of shuttle launches, what took place. So design development of the shuttle... Uh, design or, or design development of the um, the whole stack, really the whole mission, the whole platform, but also the sort of parallel developments going on in other governmental agencies. So you have the Air Force, and you have you know the 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 super secret National Reconnaissance Office. All these uh, government groups kind of doing their own thing, and then being forced to work together uh, with a shuttle. It's a lot of that sort of background stuff. And, and honestly, I learned a lot in this book. You know, I, f- I felt like I knew a lot about the shuttle program, but there were definitely a lot of things in this book that I, I was unaware of. So I, I found it uh, extremely educational. Yeah, if you're um, interested in the space shuttle, I, I think it's a really good book. It's worth a read. It is funny because it is kind of about the the origins of the space shuttle project and how they got it to having an or, having an orbiter and then it's also about very much about sts1 and the, the that first shuttle mission and the stuff the sort of drama that happens during that mission uh and and so if you're interested in the shuttle program at all you're going to get some angles that you've maybe not realized before there is i found it like the the secret thing this book also is about is the history of spy satellites, American spy mm-hmm. satellites, and that that is relevant to the space shuttle program in a couple of ways because a lot of the astronauts who ended up flying in the shuttle were astronauts sort of during the Apollo era, but they were on this Air Force program called the Manned Orbital Laboratory, which is a very funny name for something that was essentially an Air Force surveillance space station. That they mm-hmm. w- that they wanted to build, and the idea there is that they would be able to use telescopes to observe things, and then radio back what was going on, and basically spy on the Soviet Union or whatever else was going on. And it didn't work. They started building spy satellites. Those guys uh, lost their jobs, but a lot of them transferred to NASA and became NASA astronauts. But of course. Apollo was winding down. They were never going to be Apollo astronauts. So what they ended up doing was picking up the reins in terms of, even as an astronaut in the late 60s and early 70s, um, they put them to work with things other than training for missions, including, as it turns out, development of the space shuttle in a lot of ways. So a lot of those guys ended up being um, 
really involved in the development of, of the space shuttle on the early side. And of course, a bunch of them ended up flying in the space shuttle, including the early missions. So like John Young was a, an Apollo astronaut. And we've talked about him and how when we do our astronaut draft, I'm going to take him first. But, uh, you know, Robert Crippen was... Uh, an MLO, uh, MOL guy. He was an Air Force guy, and and he got into the the shuttle program because there was no seat for him until the shuttle got going, and that's what he ended up doing is helping develop the shuttle. Yeah, it's really fascinating to see how many of the the skills that those guys developed when working on the manned orbital laboratory, how, how much that really helped them and the shuttle program along. So there's like, there's a whole section of this book and it sounds like it'd be super boring to read, but it's not about the, the computers used aboard the shuttle. And of course, by today's standards, they are comically weak sauce. Sure. But that sort of thing that had been going on for these satellites and this spy space station. And so all of that knowledge really, um, came together in a way in the shuttle program that, I mean, I think if it had not been for this group of, of people being laid off and a lot of them being scooped up by NASA, uh, you know, the shuttle program may have ended up differently because these guys brought a lot of expertise to the table that, that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Certainly. It was, a, it was a different group. I mean, you had the, they're still, you know, they're still Navy uh, aviators, but different like a different kind of set of astronauts from the ones that the, that NASA had recruited for the programs up to Apollo because they were working on this Air Force program rather than a civilian program and it was about spy spying and so it was you know military focused uh, national security focused stuff I found the spy satellite stuff fascinating there are some amazing stories about I would never have picked up a book about the history of spy satellites but I kind of got it as a twofer with this book and it was great the idea that um, I, and I had no idea this was the case early spy satellites so spy satellites are telescopes they're just pointed the other way so the earliest space <laughs> telescopes were spy satellites and in fact I think there's a isn't there a space telescope that's that, that was just a repurposed spy satellite I think in fact doesn't Hubble share some technology with I, th- with, I think so with spy yeah. satellites because it's the same a lot of the same principles so the earliest spy satellites though although they could put a telescope up there uh, flying higher than you know, like a U-2 spy plane or something. Put it in space, you can't shoot it down, or certainly not easily, and take pictures of what the Soviet Union is doing. And uh, so they could do that. But they didn't have the ability to transfer pictures to the ground. So they had this system where they would put the satellites up there and they would take a whole bunch of pictures, like lots and lots and lots and lots of pictures. And that those film, the film used to take those pictures would be loaded automatically in a capsule that would get dropped out of the satellite at a certain time and re-enter the atmosphere and land usually in an ocean somewhere where the Navy would know that it was going to land and they would scoop it up and take it back to to Washington, D.C. area, era, uh, area and uh, develop the film. That is how it worked. And... There are, wild. there are funny <laughs> stories about like one of them landing like in I, something like Finland, like too close to the Soviet Union. And they like sent people to get it. But the um, and said, did anybody see a thing fall out of the sky? And they're like, no. And meanwhile, like there were Russians around. And the implication there is that the Russians found it and, and, and took it away to find out what the American spy uh, satellite 
capabilities actually were. It's just there's a lot of lot of great stuff, and they finally did figure out how to transmit pictures back. And it was it was the jig was up, right? Like they, they were never gonna have people in space taking pictures because the automated stuff just got better and better and better. Uh, but the shuttle did end up staying connected to the concept of spy satellites because one of the selling points of the shuttle would be that they could use it, as we've talked about in the past, for military missions and to launch right. spy satellites. So the, the relationship continued on, and it's sort of the through line of the book that spy satellites were helped, uh, you know, they, they generated astronauts for the shuttle program. The shuttle program, you know, had business from spy satellites, and then in the end, spy satellites were also used to challenge check out the shuttle during its first mission. So it, it, it's a very clever through line. And the part that blew me away is in the introduction to this book, I want to I read this. This is the line that just killed me when I read it. Much of the material in the latter part of this book remains deeply classified. Those with the required security clearances to tell the story are not permitted to talk about it. I pieced together events from a wide variety of sources to provide an account that is the fullest and most accurate yet published. I have been reassured that this is the case. Now, there's so much in here because, first off, you get the sense that this book, the reason we don't know a lot of stuff, oh, there's stuff I haven't read in this book before. It's because nobody knew because it's classified, like still classified. So I like that. He doesn't give away his sources here. But that last line, I've been reassured that this is the case, that is implying that he went back to the people who don't have the required security clearances and showed him what he had written or told him what he was, what, what, you know, told them what he was writing. And they gave him like the nod, like, yeah, yeah. you got it. You got it. Even though I can't tell you what it is, you got it. You got it right. Uh, because this is, you know, spy satellite stuff, still super classified stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, you see like SpaceX and ULA launching NRO satellites and there's, you know, we don't there's talk no about, video of, of nope. that separation, right? Like it is, it's secretive. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that at all. And that happens later in the STS-1 segment of this book. Uh, there's an awful lot of stories about people at NASA who know and people at NASA who don't. And and there's this like, some people know that something is going on, but if you're outside of the need to know, you, you just can't, you have to like, you have to leave the room or they have to close the door and only have certain people in the room because there is, even though it's a civilian mission, there are certain pieces of information they're getting that are classified and only for people who have the military a classification can get access mm-hmm. to it. And that happened throughout. You, you talked about the idea of the, you know, the shuttle and being designed and a lot of it's designed being influenced by the, the, the requirement really from the administration that spy satellites be flown on the shuttle. And there was a lot of resistance to that because they were using rockets to do that, that were, uh, and it being less expensive and right. and they could do it without having to get in on NASA's schedule or bump something else right they had full control of it mm-hmm. and and you see that tension in this book of the air force and the NRO being helpful when they need to be but at the same time being less than excited that all their eggs are going to be in the shuttle's basket for launches. Yeah, it's a, an interesting story. We talk about politics and how it affects space travel in you know in NASA today, but it's always been there. And in the 70s, this was the, between NASA and the military jockeying for position. Politics was a big part of it. Who gets the money? You know, and and that was just that that was part of the development of the shuttle and these things 
you know, there were cases where they helped each other and there were cases where they hindered each other, but they did kind of get yoked together. And that's just how it is. I mean, po- the politics for the shuttle, um, this book does a pretty good job of depicting a lot of the politics that went on. They really wanted a reusable spacecraft. They needed to do something after Apollo. You got the sense like, you know, Nixon, that basically the, the feeling was we can't we can't be seen as seeding aerospace uh, authority in the world by abandoning space after Apollo. The moment that really hit it home for him was he went to a summit meeting and the president of France was there and he flew in on the Concorde, right? Whereas Nixon presumably flew in on a Boeing jet. Boeing had abandoned its supersonic uh, mm-hmm. plane program at that point. And after that meeting, Nixon was like, yeah, we got to do the space stuff because I'm not going to be humiliated by <laughs> having France there with their fancy, fancy airplane. And so that was just it was a matter of pride. Um, the Soviet unions agree, totally agreed that it was a matter of pride because they decided that they couldn't cede the authority in space to their arch rivals. So they decided to copy it and like like had the book touches on that there was basically a spy program to get as much information about what was being designed yeah. for the space shuttle as possible. Yeah, the the Soviet program is super interesting and we should we should talk about it at some point on the show. Uh, yeah, I want to do a whole episode about uh, or multiple episodes about the Soviet space program in general because there's some I've read a couple of books about it and it's really interesting stuff. Um, the, this book kind of argues and I don't know if I entirely buy it, but it's a fun argument if I'm not sure how accurate it is that the increasing cost especially of the developing the Buran, which is the the space shuttle, the, the Soviet space shuttle. Like, this book sort of says it was so expensive for them to do it, and it, it, it never flew with people in it, and only flew, like, test flights, that that it's one of the, maybe not the only one or the straw that broke the camel's back, but one of the contributing factors to the Soviet Union basically running out of money in the 80s, is they spent yeah. all of this money on this program that they knew was not worth doing, but that they had to do it because they didn't want to cede space authority, which they took huge pride in having sent the first man into space, uh, and, and a lot of other firsts too. And so they spent a huge amount of money on these things that never carried people and are currently like rotting in a warehouse in Kazakhstan. Yeah. There's a, there's, I think sort of the, a large part of the the middle section of this book is the, like the building and the testing and development of the shuttle. And because the astronauts, a lot of them, even the guys from the, uh, the spy space station program are, it's still those early days, right? They're still mostly test pilots, right? It's right. kind of before astronauts became more diverse in their background. And so there's a lot of time spent on the 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 flight mechanics of the shuttle, how it was to fly, uh, a lot of time on its uh, test drops where they had, I believe it was Enterprise, you know, uh, on the back of the Boeing, and then they basically let it go and glide it down uh, to the desert floor to, to do those test runs. And I mean, I'm obviously not a pilot or an expert uh, in those sorts of things, but the book does a good job at explaining how unusual the shuttle was to fly. I mean, I think we all know that its rate of descent versus how far it was going. So that, that relationship between like horizontal distance and vertical distance, if you will, was bananas. Basically, you were falling out of the sky, basically, and that meant that if you were supposed to chase it in jets to, you know, photograph it uh, as it was coming in, you had to 
you had to like put your landing gear down, your flaps out, so you could you could fly slowly enough, um, or you could fall with it, you know, so you wouldn't race ahead of it. Um, and I think that really surprised me in this section was how much the shuttle would sort of uh, slip out from behind the pilot, so that the tail would want to go to one side or another, and how because it was really the first fly-by-wire spacecraft, right? That you had, you know, it was different than if you had pneumatics between the stick and the the edge of the wing, right? But you had a computer there, and that introduced latency. And so you could get, and they talk about this in the when they're testing this and when they're training in the uh, in the simulation that you could get in a situation where the shuttle doesn't respond quickly enough, so you overcorrect. And then uh, basically, you have made everything a lot worse. Yeah, there are a couple of stories in the book about it's like a human version of the pogo problem with with rockets, yeah. where you you do or or um, what I was trying to liken the pogo problem to with your car, which is this thing where you know you're overcorrecting and then it overcorrects too late, so you try to over over correct, and mm-hmm. then that and so you end up in this like pendulum kind of thing that is disastrous, right? So they have to figure out ways to let like train the pilots but also like maybe have the computers be aware of like overcorrections and all of that because otherwise you end up in a situation where you know you're just trying to follow your instincts as a pilot but now you're actually just getting yourself in worse trouble yeah yeah it's pretty they- pretty cool and i love the idea of the um that uh the jet pilots are trying to figure out what attitude they could have in order to uh let because it's going so fast like how do they let it go past them but like, how do they be able to see it? And then it, it's you know, it's it's a lot of more aviation stuff than I'm usually used to. But it was interesting just to see that these are pilots trying to figure out how this thing is supposed to fly, and and working with the engineers on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's there's a lot of back and forth, like like we like we see when we look at maybe not so much Mercury, but definitely Gemini and Apollo, where astronauts are involved in the development of these things totally. right they are they are testing control surfaces and panels and there's a there's a funny little story in the book about how a switch that uh i think the co-pilot had to reach was kind of behind the seat and so sometimes in the simulator there'd be like a little piece of string wrapped around the switch but then they were worried that in low gravity you'd be in a situation where that didn't work like all, all these little uh, little stories about how how the shuttle went together. Uh, something I found interesting too, because STS one, the first several launches, only had two astronauts on board. They would have to go to the mid deck and set things on the control panels there, and then come up to the cockpit, right? Because the shuttle was designed with a bigger crew in mind. With you had the the two up front, and then several people down below. And you don't have that if you only have two people. So like kind of this idea of having to go back and forth and and sort of move around and get everything set. Um, But all that being designed with astronauts in mind. And really, this book argues astronauts leading that charge. You know, these these guys with their experience coming in and saying, okay, you're going to be in charge of the heat shield. You're going to be in charge of the computing system or whatever. Um, And it makes the shuttle – it gives them much more ownership over the shuttle than if they just show up and it's already built. Right. So the book details a lot of the decisions that happen in terms of, like, do they go with the Delta Wing? Do they go with some other designs? There are a lot of different design concepts that come and go before one sort of, like, emerges as the idea, which is the one we know of, the Delta Wing design of the the familiar space shuttle, the one that you've got on your arm as a tattoo. It's that one, that shape. (laughs) You know it. Um, But 
the heat shield stuff, like that's that's the thing that was a huge deal because in order to make a reusable spacecraft, you need to not have an ablative heat shield, which is what all of these other spacecraft had used, where you know it's just burning basically, and it and it and it burns and sloughs off material, and this is how you end up uh, just kind of like pushing off all the heat. And what they wanted to do with the shuttle was have these thermal tiles that were ceramic and that could handle, that could absorb and disperse heat before it ever got to the uh, the aluminum structure of the shuttle. So it wouldn't, it would be melt, it would melt the the metal, but it would never get there because it would be on these thermal tiles. But they'd never really been used and they'd never been tried. And people, they like. It was a little horrifying because this book talks about how, like, they had ones that they thought they were going to work, but they turned out to be not good enough. They were too brittle or something. And so, like, people are kind of, like, trying all sorts of different formulations. And in the end, somebody figured out that you could basically, like, paint on a glaze over the tile and that that had a huge change in how the the, uh, thermal impact works. So they were inventing that surface for this mission. And they were really concerned because the way it was designed... You had to have pilots to fly it, which meant they were going to send people into space and their only way back to Earth was going to be using a thermal protection system that had basically never been tried in in reality. It had only been used in, uh, there's a good uh, Moffett Field reference there. They've got like, they, got, they try wind tunnels and they try lots of different modeling and they do, they, they heat it up, uh, but it's not the same as, as uh, going through a launch and a landing, which is why um, that story is fascinating, but it leads to the kind of climax of the book, which is STS-1, where there is a moment after they after they have reached orbit, and you know it's there's a great storytelling of the white knuckling of of uh, you know going up on that first launch and uh, calling out the, the 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 different aborts that they could potentially do, including to like to Europe or to Africa at various points, and switching between all the different radio relays. They finally get to orbit, and it's like yes, victorious. The space shuttle has reached orbit, and they open up the shuttle bay doors as part of their kind of test because the shuttle has this giant you know set of bay doors that they can launch things from or put a, a lab in and they open up the doors and look back at the tail and uh, around the engines and uh, there are tiles missing <laughs> it's, it's got to be a heart-stopping moment uh, right. yeah uh, yeah yeah so that's that moment where they're like after all of this conversation about these tiles and whether they'll survive and all those things. Look, a bunch of them fell off. Mm-hmm. And they can't see underneath to see where the main... They get the word from somebody who they do a lot of testing. They're like, well, we think the ones that fell off the back are going to be... It's not going to matter. Those are not an area of particular... It's not going to be... You know, it's not going to not going to get you. But what about all the tiles you can't see? Did they fall off? Yeah. And nobody, nobody knows. And how and, and like they try to get they try to get uh, telescopes down on Earth to take shots of the shuttle, but of course it's moving overhead, and it, you're shooting it through the atmosphere, and they cannot get a good shot at it. And so what happens? You end up with this very dramatic thing where they have to go like through the classified curtain and ask so, ask the uh, the military basically to turn their spy satellite, which is designed to shoot the Earth turn it around and see if they can get a view of the space shuttles underneath so that they can see 
what the tile situation is there. And the book goes into the details of like how hard that is. <laughs> like it's not what this thing is made for. They have to like flip the shuttle into a weird orientation and they do it through this thing called the teleprinter, which is like a fax machine kind of or a telegram that is, you know, the, the but it's encrypted whereas the radio calls that are by voice are are anybody can hear. And so there's this whole like back channel where the astronauts are being told what to do by a teleprinter that is not on the public record over voice. And they're telling them like, you know, not why, but like I, at this time we need you to move into this attitude and point the shuttle basically this direction. And we're not going to tell you why, but everybody kind of knows why, but nobody can say it's, it's very dramatic and it's fascinating. And there is a moment late in the book where somebody walks into a room with a very specific number of people and uh, closes the door and puts uh, an envelope down on the table and they pull out these pictures and they're pictures of the space shuttle from a spy satellite and they, it looks fine. And the guy puts the pictures back in the envelope and walks out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. It's I was amazing. never here type nope. situation. Nope. It's just amazing because that would give away all of their spy satellite capability. So they never admitted there's like a there's a scene in the book where there's like a news conference where they're asking people about are you using what about spy satellites are you using that? And they're like, guys, I'm not gonna help you. Like, we're not gonna tell you any more than we've already told you. But uh but there was, you know, obviously the story was getting around that they were probably using spy satellite imagery, but like nobody would say anything about it. It's a yeah, it's pretty great, and and it gives you just that much more respect for Young and Crippen, right? Because we had already been impressed with them. You and I have talked about like, here's a thing that's never flown before. We're just going to sit in it and let's see what happens. Super dangerous, super scary, um, and knowing more about it, like, whoa, that wasn't even the half of it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredible that the first test flight was accrued, but there was no way around it. That's, that's one leg up the, the Russians had yeah. on the American space program is that the brand could be flown completely remotely where the shuttle cannot. And, um, you know, I think, I think this book leaves the question of, you know, was the shuttle shuttle program overall good or bad? It leaves that off the table. Basically mm-hmm. it's just sort of open-ended. Um, we get, STS-1 coming home safely, and we get brief snippets of, you know, the next six or seven flights. Uh, but it, it, it sort of, le- the book leaves off in that era, right? That the shuttle is still new. Uh, there's still only a couple of orbiters. You get a little bit at the very end of the book of sort of the public, and we talked about this with Apollo too, that the public sort of stops paying attention after the first several flights because it just becomes routine. Uh that's sort of where the book leaves it, right? The shuttle is sort of geared up for decades of service, uh, which it had and and had a, a ton of successful missions. Uh, but of course, the shuttle's flawed. And you see how STS-1 uh, really is, a, is a, uh, a precursor to to that, right? Showing the complexity of the heat shield. Talking a lot in this book about how the solid rocket boosters made a lot of people nervous because you couldn't turn them off, right? Once right. they were lit, they're going somewhere. Um, and, and those are the two systems that brought down, you know, an orbiter apiece. Yeah. So uh, that's always in my mind when I read books like this of, of knowing now that we know decades later how the shuttle program ends, colors how we, how I, at least I think about sure. it in the beginning. Absolutely. Um, but the book does a good job at, I think, capturing 
just the excitement and the the opportunities that the shuttle presented in those early days. And uh, I think that's something worth remembering uh, in balance with how it ended. Yeah, it's uh, always something to keep in mind. The book sort of ends talking about Challenger a bit because that was obviously, uh, you know, this was a triumph of STS-1, but then Challenger happened fairly quickly. Um, and a lot of these astronauts were involved in dealing with the fallout of that and investigating it and all of those things and understanding the weaknesses that were in the system that they had helped get off the ground, literally. And uh, yeah, it's a good book. I like it a lot. I think I think you can use your own judgments about, about it. it. It is unflinching with its clear portrayal of the fact that a lot of decisions were made that didn't necessarily... They weren't necessarily made for the best reasons. They were made for expediency or politics um, or because we needed something to do after Apollo. Not and, that, and that's just, in the end, the people in the story, it's their job to make it work. And they do make it work. But uh, it, it leaves open the whole question of, like, is this the... Uh, is this the thing that the United States should have been doing at this time? It's like, well, it was what was done. And these people were tasked to make it happen and make it functional. And they, in some cases, you know, risked their lives to do all of that. And people spent a lot of hard work making sure that those people, uh, you know, those first two guys came home safely. And it's all, uh, it's a, it's a pretty great story. And I think, I think I walked away from it thinking that, um, the greatness of the people at NASA continued after Apollo, um, right. It was, they were implementing decisions that were in some cases questionable, but they were still being very professional about trying to solve problems and get flying and bring the crews home safely. And, uh, and, and up until uh, challenger, right. That was, that was the, the point where the story changed. But up until that point, it was really um, a triumph that they were able to take this really weird set of requirements and make the most complicated thing humans have ever designed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, thumbs up. People should check it out. Into the Black by Roland White. It's a uh, it's a good book. Yeah, Th- there'll be a link to it in the show notes, uh, which you can find over on the website relay.fm/liftoff/seventy-two. You can get in touch with us there. There's an email link. There's a link to our Tumblr where we post uh, stuff in between episodes. And of course, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason there as J Snell with two L's. And you can find me as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.